And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The Reverend William Barber is a powerful, indefatigable advocate for the poor and dispossessed of North Carolina and the entire nation. And his views on social and economic justice are familiar to many. But what I found most interesting when I sat down with him yesterday was the story of his remarkable personal journey, the faith, family, and truly excruciating battles with illness and pain and loss that helped forge his spirit and commitment. Here's that conversation. Reverend Barber, it's so good to see you. Uh, There's so much going on right now uh, that we need to talk about the voting rights battles, your uh, poor people's campaign. But before we get to uh, how we got to this moment, I want to talk for a while about how you got to this moment and ask you a little bit about your own journey uh, and your family's journey, which began uh, for you not in North Carolina, but in Indianapolis. Your dad uh, made the journey from North Carolina to Indianapolis um, and uh, met your mom. Tell me, tell me all about that. Tell me about your folks and your, how they happen to be there and how you happen to come back. Well, David, first of all, let me thank you. Journey is an interesting word, um, how we get to where we are in life. Uh, my father was born in Deep East was born in Eastern North Carolina, but raised in Camden, New Jersey, just outside of Philly. And uh, his daddy died at eight years old in the middle of the Depression. My grandma used to tell me how she was offered money for him on the black market. But as a single black woman said no, came back to the South, raised him and his brother and then two other children. And my father went in the Navy in the middle of World War II. And went to Warrington, Georgia, then went to Indianapolis, Indiana, met my mother. And my father was there studying ministry at Christian Theological Seminary and Butler University. Uh, Both my parents served in the Civil Air Patrol. A lot of people don't even remember the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, And uh, my mother worked in government. She trained at uh, business school, at Lane Business College, a black school, and and, uh, was trained by one of the top pianists in the in the in the state. And then I was born, I was born in, um, my father was pastoring and I was born August 30th, 1963. Yeah. It was a big day. Yeah. Big, it was a huge two days after the March on Washington. Now the story that they tell is that I've always been a little bit rambunctious, <laughs> difficult. So my mother said she went into labor on the 28th and I said, wait a minute, let <laughs> what this all this march on Washington stuff is all about and what happens. And after that, I decided it was time for me to come into the world and came <laughs> That's the way they tell it. Yeah, but, you began your march on that day, huh? That's right. But you think about it, but also I, um, for years, David, I had a deep problem, not problem, but sensitivity and crying. I just cry anytime, anywhere, any place, anytime. And I had some conversation with a friend of mine and does some broken psychology. And we started talking about the time in which my mother was carrying me and being in a family where the father was deeply concerned about justice issues. You know, that was the year George Wallace stood up in February Mm -hmm. segregation yesterday, today and tomorrow. 
my mother was carrying me then. That's the year that um, the South Carolina state massacres happened. My mother was carrying me then. That's the year that um, Mega Evers was shot the same night that Kennedy uh, talked about putting forth the civil rights bill. Uh, that's the same year that um, at, at the March in Washington happens. And then 17 days, 15 days after my birthday, races in this country were blowing up children in Sunday school for them. Yeah, yeah. And then another month later, two months later almost, Kennedy is dead, the president is dead. And, you know, I, I came to terms with the fact that I was carried in her womb and born into America in a time when there was so much death and so much hurt. And then the next year, you know, Swanner, Chaining, Goodman, so forth. Yes. And I don't know how that could have affected me somehow or another, but um, I've always taken that as being significant. I asked myself, what could my mother, we've talked about, she's 86 years old, Mama, what were you thinking about 15 days after you have a child being a wife of a preacher and folk down south are blowing children up in Sunday school, and then you and daddy decide to go south. You know, my my parents did the reverse. I know, I, I know. I I that I wanted to ask you about that because they had a a comfortable life Very in uh, Indianapolis, and your father got a call, mm-hmm. and they headed back to Roper, North Carolina. Why? Yeah, my father was a pastor. He had worked some at the Flanner House. By this time, he, um, you know, had what would be equivalent of two master's degrees, which was abnormal in among black church, black preachers at the time. My mother was working in government. Uh, he was on an upper trajectory uh, with the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, which, by the way, David, is actually predominantly white. Yeah. Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And he gets a call from E.V. Wilkins. E.V. Wilkins was a power broker in the eastern part of North Carolina uh, among black Democrats. And and he was the principal of the all-black union school. And uh, he sent word to my father that around 1964-65, that 10 years after Brown versus Board of Education, they still had not desegregated in the county. Uh, they still were breaking the law. You know, there was attempts in North Carolina to, to create a situation where if you didn't want to go to integrated schools, your tax dollars could follow your child, you know, uh, uh, body. And um, my father said, yes, I'll come back. He, the call was, we need you to come back and start meeting and working with teachers, white and black, uh, clandestine, uh, to get them ready. I'm not even 60 years old. And I went to segregated kindergarten in first grade. My mother, who just retired from the same school system after 52 years of service, was, was a, was, went from being a secretary in an integrated situation in Indiana to a secretary in a in segregated school. My father became a science teacher in the segregated school. And then when I went to the second grade, I moved to the desegregated school. And my mother became the first black uh, secretary, principal secretary at the formerly all-white high school. So tell me what it was like uh, as a second grader 
to come into that school? You know, it was so, by the time we get to the late 60s, 1970s, the way they did it in in, in Washington County, it was the younger kids. Now, the hard stuff happened actually at the high school. They were having fights and and, and battles and, and all kinds of things there. Um, we didn't experience as much of it. I, there was some sense of isolation, you know, because mm-hmm. as I said, I, I, I'd been around when I went to Union, uh, everybody was there, mom, daddy, and all. Yeah. Um, uh, but I don't remember a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. I actually had more trauma. This is the strange thing. When I finally got to high school in 19, uh, in the 1980s, 1979, in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. And uh, two things. One of my classmates, I was a thespian, and one of my classmates uh, won the role, lead role in South Pacific. She was black. And that meant that in that role, she would have to kiss one time the white lead actor. And it was crazy, the response to that. Uh No, and she ended up having that role taken from her. In 1980, my senior year, I ran for student government president at Plymouth High School. That was the formerly all-white high school. And my mother helped integrate. I And won, but here's the thing they should know. In 1980, I was the first student government president to serve the whole year because up until then, they elected one black and one white. They like split the duties. Exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. And and I can remember there was a lot of talk about that, you know, in, in the community. That and, and I never will forget when I won, uh Evie Wilkins' brother, T. A. Wilkins, I was a bus driver as well. And when I that evening went to the parking lot to get my bus, he came on, he was the supervisor, and he made me step off the bus and he said, I'm just, I, I have a problem with you. And I, what is wrong with him? And he was just getting on me. You got to do better. You got to do better. And then all the lights on the buses came on because it was mostly African-American drivers. And he said, if you're going to be our student government president. I said, Juan? He said, yeah. But his point was, mm-hmm. this is not just a little school thing. This, they saw this in the context of it being a major event yeah. in the school community. Did right. you feel it? Did you feel th- oh, yeah. uh, some special burden in that? Because, you know, I, I think about this a lot. <clears throat> uh, when Sonia Sotomayor was being considered for the Supreme Court, uh, President Obama asked me to talk to her. And I said, what, what are your, you know, we had a great talk. And I said, what are your fears? And she said, uh, my fear is not measuring up. Yeah. And that, and I realized what a burden that was. When you're breaking, you know, when you're breaking through, when you're, you're, you know, these barriers. And I thought about my own, you know, the president I was working for and the burdens that you carry. It's not like anybody else who, when you're the first, the pressures are enormous. Yeah, I mean, just being student government president, I could walk downtown, people would just clap. They'd come up and say, you know, we're finally so glad might seem small in some people's minds, but in a rural community, this yeah. is huge. And, and, you know, and they would always say, no, don't mess up in school. Yeah. Us. 
You know, so my grades, if I made it, my teachers would say, you got to do better than this because you are. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I rebelled some of that, you know, because it was always these, these heavy, heavy, heavy expectations. Yeah. Now, I also remember during that time, Dave, my, my uncle, who's deceased now, he came back to, the, to East North Carolina. He had married a German, a white woman who was German. She had a son. And I remember one day uh, sitting in the, we were looking at Fred Sanford. I never will forget it. Sanford and son, and we were sitting in the uh, his his place, and all of a sudden, we look. We saw this fire, and his son, his stepson, who was white, had had an encounter with some white boys in the school, and he beat up a couple of them because he's really big. And that night, um, somebody decided to come burn a cross because my my uncle. Huh. Did. Way back up. Now this isn't. This is like seventies and eighties. Yeah, this isn't. This and, isn't the fifties. Yeah. Now my uncle was a little different than my dad in terms of nonviolence. He simply got up. He saw it. He went to the um, gun rack. He took out his rifle. He, he grabbed his, sh- his flashlight. Threw me. Told him to come in. Gave me a twelve grade shotgun. Already loaded. Said, "Go to the back door, and if anybody comes through, you know what you got to do." And I'm thinking. I'm 13, 14 years oh, old. What the world is this? And and sure enough, as I got the back there, I heard kapow. And then I heard him say, and the next one will not be over your head. Then I heard all these cars. <laughs> I don't know whether it was the young clan or whatnot. And then he, he, after the, the commotion stopped, he hollered and said, Billy. I said, yes. He said, come on. He came back. He took the gun from me, put it back on the rack, put his gun back on the rack. So you want some tea? We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You also traveled, uh, you traveled the state. Your father was kind of an itinerant preacher uh, back then. Yeah, my dad um, was a general evangelist of the church. You know, I traveled with him everywhere, some 30-some states uh, in my early life. He was always going somewhere. And he took me with him, I thank God. He, he told people, if my son's not welcome, then neither am I. And he was very intentional about learning through both uh, uh, the, in terms of academics, but also through osmosis and also through interaction. Um, he... Um, uh, was involved not only in desegregation of schools, he was involved in the early union, uh, in the early labor fights. Now, they didn't have unions at the warehouse, what we call the pulp mill plant, but there was a situation there where black workers had made le- were making less than white workers, and, and, and he got involved in that work. He helped a lot of rural farmers, white and black. He worked for the community action program that was started under the Johnson administration. You know, it was a part of the great society. He also, early on, worked on some police brutality issues. But, um, yeah, my father was always on the move, traveling, engaging. So it was always always a combination of prayer and activism. Yeah, I remember going to meet Jesse Hams with him. uh, Oh, is that right? I remember the preachers went in, and they were pushing on something, and Jesse Hams said, now you boys. And I kind of flinched, and they pushed a little bit, and then we left. I said, damn, this man just, he said, I know what he did. But I wanted you to see his way of thinking. I said, I said, well, what is that? He said, in his mindset, he's not trying to get 100% of the vote help. He just wants 51%. That's mm-hmm. all he cares about. And all he wants is just power. 
and really mm-hmm. the power to say no, not the power to say yes. And if you're going to be in this, you need to understand that about some people. And that's why you can, must have uh, your any moral movement you involved in must understand the morality of the power of the vote, the morality of organizing, not just it's a good idea. The moral, you must understand the intersections between voting and economics. You can't ever forget it because he said nobody will want power as much as that man does if it was just about uh, holding an office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned uh, that your your dad was involved in the early labor movement. People forget that it was uh, that Martin Luther King was in Memphis to support sanitation workers there, black sanitation workers who were uh, who were being mistreated. Uh, and it was a labor action that he was involved in. So you went on to uh, North Carolina Central University. You didn't... The only school in the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, they made a good investment in you, but you did not in your mind have divinity, have the ministry... Uh, why? As much as you were steeped in that, uh, why did you not want to go into the ministry? Number one is there are 500 years of ministry, David, on just my father's side. Uncles yeah. and cousins, 300 on my mother's side. Number two, my father was extraordinarily progressive for his, his, his time. Now, he didn't call it progressive. He called it Christianity. Mm-hmm. He just said, this is just orthodox Christianity. You're supposed to care for the poor, the least of these, and stand up for justice and righteousness. But there were a lot of people, even in the quote-unquote black church, that would tell him, we don't want to have all that in our churches. And so he often butted heads with the leadership. And I saw that, and I thought it was pure hypocrisy. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I didn't want to go to a school that even had a course in religion. So North Carolina Central didn't, but they had a law school. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to go to North Carolina Central. I'm going to do three. At that time, they had, uh, you could go three years, and your senior year, you go to your first year of law school. After that, you got your undergraduate. And then yeah. you three. And I did. And uh, then my senior year, uh, I got tracked down by what my grandmama called the Holy Ghost. And, and I couldn't go left or right. I kept having these epiphanies and theological struggles. And, 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 and I called one day in, in 83 and said to my dad, something's going on. He said, come home. I said, I didn't tell you what. He said, come home. And when I came home, he said, get, get in the car. And we drove down the coastline of North Carolina, Nags Head, all, and talked for two or 300 miles about life, about ministry, about the decision I had to make, whether I was going to do stuff from the outside or from the inside, understanding the difference between God and God's people, the church in its church as a pure, as an ideal concept versus the church practical. And uh, I decided to accept the call, the ministry, which he then immediately challenged me that that had to be a call to get trained, a call to, to, to do serious work because it was nothing for a neophyte. Somebody, it's not just about speaking. You're not a glorified MC. You're not just an orator, you, you know. And um, on his birthday, March 21st, that weekend of 1984, I did what we call a trial sermon in my home church. On the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan. The title was, um, was uh, sometimes you got the, the way up is down. <laughs> 
That was a paraphrase of it. And uh, he sat there and watched me. And uh, then I preached my baccalaureate service some in my third third year of uh, seminary. Because uh, when it, let me back back when I preached that trial sermon, there were some people that came up to me that day at the end and said, "Good gracious, young man, you sure can preach." And one of them said, "Now our church," and my father said, "No, no, 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 don't even say that to him." And when I when I we were riding home, he said. Number one, don't you listen to anybody to tell you you're ready to pastor anything. Mm-hmm. He said, number two, I will from this point be your toughest critic. And whenever I would preach sermons, no matter how people would stand and clap, he would sit there. And when we get in the car and get home, he said, go get your Bible. Let me show you something. Go go, go, go get the thesaurus. You, 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 you didn't exegete this piece properly. You didn't do mm-hmm. that. And I was like, can he just clap one time, please? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, was, uh, it wasn't until my, I, 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 two weeks before he died, I was preached a baccalaureate service, as I said, at my high school. And my father by then had had a stroke. Uh, he had a, had a stroke and he had worked back from it, but he still had the effects of it. And so he had sleep apnea, but he would just kind of go off to sleep sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. even when I was preaching, I don't know how he could still hear because he could still tell me everything I said, but anyway, <laughs> and he stayed awake that whole sermon. I kept looking at him and he was there awake. He was there awake. He was awake. He was awake. And then afterwards we left and we were walking down the halls of the high school that my mother had integrated, that he had integrated. And he touched me on the hand and said, son, I think you're going to be all right. And I said, what? He said, that was pretty good. I think you're going to be all right. We went home. And uh, when I got ready to leave that night with my grandmother and mother and everybody, he came to the door and just stared at me. I said, dad, are you okay? He said, I'm okay. He said, I said, are you going anywhere? He said, so someday. Uh-huh. And I never talked to him again. Huh. Uh, a week later, I got a call. And my grandmother said that he had died. Uh, Interestingly, and, I'm not make, and this is not a makeup, I was studying that week the story of Elijah and Elisha when the hmm. mantle fell. And um, we buried him uh, in, on Father's Day in, in June of uh, 1988. Buried him on Father's Day. Sure did. I could spend hours talking to you, but I got to compress a little bit because there's so much that we need to get to. Uh, but you, 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 you didn't go and pastor after you left the uh, uh, left Duke and left Divinity School, you went and you chaired the North Carolina Human Relations Commission, and you did that for for year uh, for several years. Uh, actually, you- actually, when I finished Duke, I set out um, in '88 because after he died, I was just it was really hard for me because he was uh-huh. my mentor, and then my grandmother died two weeks later. So my two best friends in the whole world died within huh. ten days. And uh, so I sat out and went, and I actually spent the summer working with the Upward Bound, and then I worked some with the lieutenant guy who was running for governor, Jordan, who was his name. He was running mm-hmm. uh, on a Democratic ticket. And uh, so my, some people said, you need to learn this, whether you use it or not. So I learned the inside of the structure about state campaigns. I went back in 89 and finished my work studying. I did a, some independent study on Paul Tillich. Then I went to, um, I pastored in Martinsville, Virginia in 89. I became the senior pastor there. 
And then I came back to North Carolina and Governor James B. Hunt. Yes. A Southern governor. Yeah, great governor. And he asked me if I would serve as one of the youngest directors of the Human Relations Commission in North Carolina. And I started in 1993. A few years later, when you were 30, you accepted uh, the uh, a, a job as the pastor of the Greenleaf Christian Church in Goldsboro. Wh- why did you decide to uh, to go back to to the pulpit. And you know, my, now, now the mothers in our church, if they were hearing this, they would say, now David, he didn't get called to a job. No, I understand. I, I knew that when I said it. Yeah, that's right. I, 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 I well, apologize to them for me, will you? Because I knew when I said it, that wasn't the right way to put it. Because they would say, now, the Bible says a hireling is mm-hmm. not a good shepherd. Yes. So, and, and I say that in this context. I didn't plan to go to that church, David. I was still, after I left my first congregation, I still had some sights about going to law school. Mm -hmm. I figured I probably wouldn't pass, I would preach. And I spent some time as the campus director, director of campus ministry at my alma mater. And I was called to Greenleaf because they were without a preacher. And they called me. I knew of the church because my father was also a historian and a writer. And in his books, he had written about this congregation, one of the older congregations founded by former slaves. So I went there and I stood in that pulpit, Dave, and I said to them, I'm here to preach one Sunday. You all do not have to consider me or evaluate me while I'm preaching because I'm not candidating for the church. I preached, and afterwards, the mothers. You obviously me. weren't very persuasive. No. They, 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 <laughs> the mothers grabbed me at the back and said, you're going to be our pastor. And I said, ma'am, these are like 80-year-old women. I said, no. They said, no, you, you're going to be our pastor. We're going to start praying about this. And so they invited me back. And I came back one time. And then they asked me what I consider. And I said, I wrote all this long letter about if I was to consider what concerns I would have because the church had had some trauma with division and they said this is what we want this is what we need and slowly but surely next thing I knew I'd said yes and then and then you had a crisis of your own uh, that uh, was life-changing tell me what happened I had battled ankylosing some um since my days in high school when I played football, when they yeah. first showed up. But I preached. That's a very severe arthritis. It's a very severe arthritis. I'd say it's like a laser-guided missile. It, it only affects certain things. It devastates the spine, the neck, uh, hips, uh, and uh, it can hit anybody. And when it's in full aggression, uh, it can shut you down. I mean, it can kill you, actually because of what it can do over time to squeeze the chest cavity together and fuse the spine and have effects on all of your electrodes, you know, the electro electric connections in the body. I preached um, four Sundays at Greenleaf uh, in 1993. And the last Sunday of the July, I borrowed a text from Dr. Sam Proctor, a subject. He had preached a sermon entitled Giants Keep Coming. And I acknowledged him 
but then put it in terms of how David in the Bible faced Goliath at the most inopportune times of his life. And that Friday, I went to get out of bed and I moved my leg and David, I, I didn't know what was going on with me. Pain hit me and ran up my leg. I didn't know whether I was having a stroke or what. And they had to call the ambulance. They took me into the uh, hospital. It was hurting so bad. The leg, literally, the pain was so bad. My leg was jumping. It was like it was like somebody kept sticking a hot poker on the joint, and it was just doing like this. And every time it jumped, the pain would 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 just. Whew. And uh, I, then I heard one of the emergency doctors said, it could be bone cancer. We don't know. We got to get this to have to amputate. And I started screaming, you're not amputating my leg. No, what the way? Hold it. Long story short, I found out that I had a major, major, major flare of ankylosing. And it left me on a walker in a wheelchair. Spent two and a half months in the in the uh, hospital. You were married. You you had oh, yeah. kids, kids then. And had a baby on the way. Yeah. Had just just started as human relations director, had started what they call full time but part time at the church, and uh, and they and and while I was there, they told me I might never, you know, walk uh, again. Uh, you know, they couldn't. It was a whole lot of things about what they could and couldn't do in terms of taking out the hip and what could happen if they took mm. the job. It actually end up worse. You're thirty years old. 30, and my young man and my pride. I mean, yeah. that was when I played football or uh, when I moved around, I always trusted the strength of my legs. Yeah. You uh, did that challenge your, for, what, what was your, what was your mindset and, and did it challenge, challenge your well, faith? Depression. I mean, I say this because people need to know that. Yeah. Kind of folk they see is strong. I, I was, I was theologically, you call me the priest now, I can't stand. Uh, I was in so much pain that, Every time they tried to pain medicine, Demerol wouldn't touch it. They guess wow. I had I, they, I went all the way up to two thousand milligrams of naproxen. I mean, that's like crazy, man. Then they tried steroids, and finally they found some things that worked. And uh, then I then they had to they put me through a series of therapeutic physical therapeutic things with the tens unit to actually elevate my body's pain level and the ability to produce its own morphine. You know how pain mm-hmm. pain killers inside your body. But um, I, I went through some I, I, a period of time I didn't want to talk to anybody. In fact, there's a story I write about in my book where um, I was just bad off, man. I, I had some preachers call me and tell me that it must be my fault because if I had faith, I wouldn't be mm-hmm. <laughs> like this. And, and uh, you know, I got a new family. I'm just starting in government. Uh, yeah. I didn't have tenure. I didn't have, you know, any of those things. And... Um, you know the 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 I had a, the church I just gone there, uh, and uh, I you know so anyway, I went into a time of very serious anger, depression, and I the doctors I could hear them outside the room worrying about me psychologically. It wasn't that I was mad at other folk. I was just trying to figure out what in the world is because you got to understand up until that time, pretty much anything I touched and wanted to do worked. Mm-hmm. And I don't forget the night I went to sleep. And the next morning I wake up, I guess I was awoke. And uh, this lady was in my room in a wheelchair. I write about it in the book. She was in my room. And she said, I came in here to see you. She said, my name is Miss Watson. I said, she said, they tell me you ain't here pouting. 
And I said, ma'am, I really don't want to talk to you. She said, well, you can't go anywhere. <laughs> and she said, look at me. I'm, I'm amputated. They're going to give me two new legs, but I'm going on to heaven eventually. I'm going to get me this brand new body. But you have work to do, and you might as well get over being crippled. You might as well get over and just do what you've been called to do. I said, ma'am, you really need, I just don't want to talk to you. She said, well, I'm going to pray for you anyway. And so in whatever this was, she prayed for me. And next morning when I woke up or I got up, I don't remember exactly what happened. I, I, I felt different. Then I called the nurse and I said, there's a lady on this floor. I want to talk to her. Long story short, she went, tried to find a name. Doctors came in and said, well, who are you talking about? Because they thought something else was going on with me. He said, we don't have any body by that name that's been amputated in the hospital. So I decided that God sent me an amputated angel. Huh. And her prayer and what she said to me shook me that I needed to get over my vanity. I needed to get over whatever it was that whatever God was asking me to do, whether it was to lead a march, I could just roll if it needed to. If it was to stand in the pulpit and I could sit down or I could stand and hold my walker. But this was not time to quit. I was not the first one. Everybody in the scripture that God used had some physical disability from Moses' stuttering to Elijah's battle with bipolarism to Paul's thorn in the flesh to Jesus being a man acquainted with sorrow to, to you know, a, a Miriam having leprosy. And I could go on down the line. Uh, Mary Magdalene having her struggles. Get up. And so I told the doctor. I'm ready now to do the therapy, whatever I need to do. I need one thing. Can I call my mother and can we get a piano on the floor? He said, what? I said, I just need a piano, my mama to play some the hymns of the church that I grew up on, that my daddy had taught me. Like if, if this world from you withhold all its silver and its gold, and you have to get along with me, go fair, take your bird. Just remember in his word, how he fed the little bird, take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there. And that's how I did therapy. And yeah, 12 years on the walker. You, you've dealt with that for the rest of your life. That's my life, yeah. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You know, you've been a big, a huge voice for healthcare, for, you know, the availability of, of healthcare for everyone who needs it. And I, I also know that one of, one of your children had a battle with uh, hydrocephalus. Yeah. What, what did these experience, how did they, how did they impact your thinking about those issues uh, of, of healthcare and access to it? Well, it may me think I when I went in I had health care, you know, my wife was a nurse and whatnot. I knew mean, what do people go through and they, they don't have it. Mm-hmm. And I think that when people say they're blessed, I say, for what are you blessed? Right? What do you mean? Because if it means you have something that other people don't have and you think that's what makes you blessed because you have it, I actually think no, you're blessed if you have it and they don't, and then you fight for them to have it because it should be accessible to all human beings to be a human right. My daughter had hydrocephalus at a year and a half. We, we could have lost her interest if she was operated on by Ben Carson. 
I know, I saw Jane that. Carson decided that he was against health care. She actually called him out in the newspaper and said, so you want your patients to die, Mr. Carson? What is your problem? Yeah. Uh, when we were, when we were uh, fighting for the Affordable Care Act, and Kay Hagan of North Carolina yeah. was considered not voting. Late senator, yeah. The late senator, who I had deep respect for. But I went with her. I took my daughter with me. And when we were in the room talking to her, myself, Hillary Shelton at the time, my daughter said, excuse me, I need to say something to the senator. And she said, do you want people like me to die? I need you to vote. I need this. She said, this is not even enough, but you need to do this. And uh, she's a writer today. Uh, 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 I, they call her mini-me. She's short and strong. <laughs> but uh, um, in my faith tradition, you know, it's blessed are they who are who mourn. And Howard Thurman said, mourning is when you care so deeply about other situations that you work and you suffer underneath of those oppressions to change them. My faith tradition says that nations, governments, will be judged by how we treat the poor, the sick, the immigrant, the stranger, uh, and those without. In the Jewish tradition, one of the greatest, two of the most powerful passages of scripture is Isaiah 10, where it says, woe unto those leaders who rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey. We don't often talk about the rights of the poor, but scripture does. And then that great Yom Kippur text, Isaiah 58, where it says you can go through all the religious ceremony you want to, but if the nation is going to be a repairer of the breach, you must stop exploitation in the workplace. You must loose the bands of wickedness and stop blaming the victims and bring the poor into the center of society. And so that's how I understand theologically from the prophets to Jesus. And when things happen to me and my family, we try to look at what does this experience teach us about the, and what does this experience call us to do? And, and who does this experience call us to stand on the side of? Because we can never relish in the fact that we have it and others don't. You know, it's, it's so interesting to hear you talk about uh, Scripture and your uh, understanding of what it calls you uh, uh, to do, uh, because our politics is riven with uh, a different kind, a different interpretation, or by a different interpretation of uh, of. Christianity. And I saw a quote from you the other day. You said some folks hijacked hijack Christianity and decided that they were going to put up a lot of money to promote the idea that uh, to be a person of faith was to be anti-choice, anti-gay, pro-gun, pro-tax cut. It's theological malpractice. Do you have dialogue? You, 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 there's a, a robust evangelical, white Christian evangelical community in North Carolina, and obviously you travel the country. What kind of, do you have dialogue with fellow theologians over this? Sometimes. And let me try to unpack in short order a couple of things, though. The struggle of faith versus heresy in this America has been at the core of her existence. Um, Dr. Sierk Lincoln used to teach me, said the problem in America is you had Christianity and then you had Americanity. Uh, the problem is you had the religion of the slave master and then you had the Christian of Jesus as Frederick Douglass. And you can never equate the two as just being opposite sides of Christianity. One is 
it's like you didn't have two armies in America. You had the Confederate terrorists and then you had the army, <laughs> the Union Army, right? Um, and, and, and the same in the church. And the Civil War started in the church before it started in the state society. The church is split. Almost every church, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, all split prior to 19, I mean, 1846-47 in America, before there was a Civil War. Secondly, uh, historically speaking, uh, uh, oppression in this country, particularly that driven by race, uh, as Taisha Coates says, race is the son of racism. Racism is the system that was designed to split black and white people and others from working together, particularly poor and low wealth people. Uh, a lot of and the categories of race were created after the ba- Bacon's Rebellion in the late 1600s through the 1709-1708 slave codes when race became a category uh, as a way of, of, of demeaning a certain group's personhood, not just citizenship, but their personhood uh, and making it subhuman. Uh, and when America made the terrible mistake of elevating citizenship over personhood so that certain people might be people, but based on their color of the skin, they can't be citizens. And then lastly, I would say that the great struggle is we've had, you know, five of them. I like to say the whole system of racism and, and, and oppressions grow out of five things. Evil economics, the end justifies the means. Sick sociology, some people have to be subordinate to others. Bad biology, some people are, are less than because of their skin color. Their brain size can be determined by skin color. Political pathology, where every time you're trying to move forward, as Calhoun said, uh, racism is underneath the table like a crouched cobra, ready right, to bite anybody. And then, but the last one is heretical ontology, the suggestion theologically that this is God's doing, the claim that the racism and the sexism or the anti whatever is of God. That's heretical. And so we have robust conversation. But there are those who don't want to have it because they can't have a Christian conversation. So, for instance, we challenged Jerry Falwell and Franklin Graham and some of them to a conversation. They wouldn't have the debate. They won't, they won't have it. See, evangelical was hijacked. L- let me ask you about an issue uh, within your own church community. You know, when uh, I was working with President Obama, when he was— as well, well, back to when he was a state senator, and certainly when he was president and working on the issue of uh, of same sex marriage, um, some of the strongest resistance came from within the black church community. Um, how do you combat that? How do you deal with? And, and that was predicated on their reading of of scripture. Well, let me correct the record a little bit. You know, I don't consider myself a black church pastor. Father wouldn't allow that. I'm a pastor who pastors in, in, a, in a church that had black people in it. Right. Look, I think President Obama would say he wasn't a black president. He was a president who was black. That's right. And I'm actually a proponent of same-sex marriage, but not from a political standpoint, but from a, a, a theological standpoint. First of all, God, everybody that's here in my theological tradition have ended the Imago Dei. God created them. Uh, second of all, in scripture, there might be two or three scriptures that seem to speak against the issue of the homosexuality, uh, same gender, but 
There are 2,000 scriptures in the Bible that speak to how the majority of the work of faith is to stand against the poor, the oppression of women and children, and the least of these. So, and then none of the scriptures that even a little bit suggest that there might be something wrong, which, is, which most of them are misinterpreted, none of them trump Jesus, who never said anything about it, but, and, and none of them override Jesus' call to love your neighbor and yourself, that love is the center of who we are. And when we began to teach that, and when we showed also that the same forces that claim they're against same-sex marriage, their heritage is being anti-desegregation. That's where they started. They also are anti-living living wages. They're also anti-health care once the child gets here. They also are anti-public education. So at one speech, I said, we can't have people coming in our communities in a Trojan horse and saying, stand with us against gay people, when in fact you stand against us on everything else. And that resonated. I I need to horribly compress an incredible biography here uh, and just stipulate that uh, you went from from the church uh, to become president of the NAACP in, uh, in North Carolina. You became nationally known uh, for your Moral Monday uh, protests at the state capitol uh, uh, around a, a, a variety of issues, but voting rights were very much at the center uh, of them. We're in a new voting rights battle today. And, you know, you've written, you wrote a book called The, 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 uh, the Third Reconstruction. And part of what you said was that there were these bursts of progress that were followed by a backlash um, and tell me where we are right now, uh, in, in these battles. And, and yes, let me also stipulate that you went, you, uh, uh, you, you know, you, you you went from the, uh, uh, from the NAACP to start your, uh, uh, uh yes. Right. And, and, and then the, and launch your poor people's campaign. So, you know, you, <laughs> I don't want to cheat any of that, all important, but I, I want to bring us up to date, and right. I want you to take, I want you to assess where we are uh, at this moment in our country. Well, well, let me do a quick panoramic view and come right to that point and tell you where I knew you from. You know, I started this conversation. In 2007, 2005, when I took over the NAACP, we immediately started to build a fusion coalition modeled after the 19th century, the only time in the South where black and white people came together for a period of time and fundamentally shifted the country. It was violently disrupted. And then you had the second reconstruction, which was in the 1960s. But oftentimes we do not look hard enough at that first reconstruction move that happened from 1865 until the early 1880s and a little bit in the 1890s. It it needs to be looked at more. Because what it did is it brought black and white people together uh, in, in, in ways in the South and transformed the country. Uh, so in 2007, using that model, we forced Democrats who controlled the, the House and the Senate and, 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 and North Carolina and the government to finally pass same-day registration, early vote. Then President Obama, you were there, you know, that's where I know yeah. you from. He ran and lost on election day, but he won doing early voting, same-day registration. And during that time, we took a, a we we pushed a million or so black and brown voters and students to register early and vote on the same day. That story isn't often told. 
And it was right after that, you know, David, that in 2010, you had the backlash, but you also had all of a sudden, all of this caused a fraud, 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 right? 2012, the Republicans win uh, through cheating. They, they went through voter, uh, voter suppression. More people voted for progressives than they did um, uh, 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 extremists. But in 2010, the, the Republicans passed the, most, the worst uh, uh, redistricting law. And we have to fight it in court because it got it, it made this muster through preclearance, even though later on it was called racist, systemic uh, surgical racism. And they assumed a supermajority, the governorship and the Senate and the House. And they started out deny health care, cut unemployment, cut public education, attack the LGBT community, attack the immigrant community. And then during Easter week, this week, David. They put a bill on the floor in the Senate and passed it, and the computer named it Senate Bill 666. I kid you not. It was the worst voter suppression bill. Then they tabled it. And then they passed a bill in the House, House Bill 587, that had photo ID in it, and then they tabled it. And then they waited until the Shelby decision. And on June 25th, when that decision came down, a Republican senator in North Carolina said, now that the headache has been removed. Shelby versus Holder, which... uh, uh kind of gutted the uh, vo- uh, some provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Particularly yeah. out of Section 5, because 40 counties in North Carolina were covered. But when it, ca- when it gutted... So they had to get pre-clearance from the pre-clearance. Uh, Justice Department for changes exactly. in election procedures. Exactly. Now, to be honest, we didn't believe that redistricting plans should have ever made pre-clearance passed under Obama and under uh, the Obama administration and Eric Holder. We fought that, we, it, but it did. And so we had to deal with what we had to deal with in 2012. But in 2013, when it passed, a Republican senator said, now that the headache has been removed, they brought 587 back up and gutted Senate Bill 666 and put all of that in 587, passed the worst voter suppression bill after the Shelby decision. We filed suit within 40-some minutes. That launched the Moral Monday movement because we were saying, if they're going to crucify health care and crucify public education and then crucify voting rights, then every crucifixion needs a witness. And for two years straight, every Monday, over 1,500 people got arrested. In February 2014, we had 100,000 people to gather, the biggest gathering ever in the South around these combined issues. Now, where are we today? I believe we're in the birth pains and almost of, of a third reconstruction. I believe that extremists understand that they can't win the demographic battle in the South is changing that they were scared when Obama won Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida in 2008. Uh, Georgia has happened now, but more important than just those states, there's a demographic shift. I believe they know that a third of the electorate is now poor and low wealth, uh, almost a third of the electorate, uh, 65 million people. I believe they know that um, one-third of our poor people live in the South, one-third of our poor white people live in the South that the demographic shifts, particularly in the South, afford us a powerful opportunity to return to fusion politics. I don't believe the South is red. I believe it's more unorganized than it is red. I believe what Dr. King said in 65 at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March when he stood on the steps of the state capitol, that every time there's the possibility for the white and Negro masses to vote together and to enact labor laws and fight for economic justice, the Southern aristocracy deliberately sows division. I think that's why you see so much money going in now to these uh, over 200 um, voter suppression laws. It's a fear. 
I also think this is a time where Democrats have got to decide not to be focused on so-called neoliberalism or focus on being centrist, but decide that they're going to be constitutionalists and say, and for every piece of legislation, how does it establish justice? How does it lift from the bottom? If we can speak to the third of the electors, poor and low wealth, which is really the only place to expand the electorate, and only and 29 million poor and low wealth people that could have voted didn't vote this last time, but 55% of poor and low wealth voters making under 50,000 did vote for Biden-Harris. That's significant. And we, in the Poor People's Campaign, we're moving from Alabama to Appalachia. We're, we're bringing communities together. We have 43 coordinating committees now. We're bringing communities together to address these five interlocking injustices, systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, the false moral narrative, religious nationalism. Last June, we called for a mass Poor People's Assembly moral march on Washington. We couldn't have it because of COVID. We had it digitally. 2.7 million people showed up, Dave. This fall, we invited Trump and former, uh, now President Biden to a we, we must do more organize more organizing registering educating people for the movement who vote 1.4 million people showed up Trump didn't come President Biden did and he said that ending poverty would be a theory of change not just an aspiration we're in a moment where we have to push now and I pray that we don't make critical mistakes like for instance um, framing the fight for 15 as only an economic battle and not both a, a, a battle about ending, dealing with systemic racism and dealing with economic injustice. The minimum wage, the $15 minimum 15. wage. And, and the reason I say that, David, is because, and I, I'll just be honest with you, I thought one of the most racist things that could happen, one of the most class, this, uh, most, most ugly forms of classism and elitism, was when eight white Democrats, five men, three women, joined 49 white Republicans, one black, and say no to an amendment to keep 15 in a union, 15 in the, in the relief bill. And here's the reason why. That was the Friday before Bloody Sunday. Dr. King connected economic justice and voting rights. You can't separate the two. You, you can't really come up out of how we got into this pandemic economically because when, when we've done our studies, we, there are 140 million poor and low-wealth people in this country prior to COVID, if you look at the supplemental income measurements the way we do that Columbia University does. Uh, And there were 62 million people in this country before the pandemic that made less than $17 an hour. So you cannot fundamentally lift this economy, even prior to COVID, without having a minimum wage, a living minimum wage. And 15, David, last thing, the March on Washington asked for $2 minimum wage, which would be 15 today. So when they did that, they said no to 40% of black workers that would have risen up out of poverty and low wealth, 40% and millions of white voters. Just to be clear about this, the, the, the dispute in the Senate was uh, over whether or not such an amendment belonged, could be considered as part of that reconciliation bill. I don't want to get too technical about it. The parliamentarian said no. You you were disappointed that uh, you were disappointed. You thought that the uh, Democrats and and including the Vice President Kamala Harris should overrule the the, the parliamentarian. No, no, what we said was here. The House passed it. First of all, we argued for it to be immediate, which would have made it would have had more impact on the budget, which was one of the concerns of the parliamentarian. Uh, we said it should be immediate, not spread out. That was Certainly. phased in over four years. Right. The one phased, they were which lessens the impact. 
Uh, we said it should be immediate. We haven't raised it in nine years. Uh, we've waited 57 years since the March on Washington. If you want to talk about black people, it take, took us zero to 400 years to get to 725. Secondly, it was what was run on. And they didn't say if the parliamentarians said, they said we have to have this because people are working at poverty rates and we're going to stop treating people like they're expendable while we call them essential. Thirdly, the parliamentarian has been challenged before. Hubert Humphrey did it. Nelson Rockefeller did it. Trent Lott fired one over tax cuts and got the tax cuts he wanted. The parliamentarian is not a constitutional officer. He advises. She advises. He, if they had advised and it had stayed as it was out of the House, they advised against it. The vice president could overrule it. Then it would have taken 60 votes, not a one vote, not a 51, 60 votes to take it out of the bill. When it was rewritten in the Senate and taken out, it then forced it to have the only way you could do it because there was no overriding. Now, Bernie had to put it, had to do an amendment, but the amendment only needed one vote. Lastly, we didn't elect Joe Manchin. We elected Joe Biden. And Joe Manchin, in his own state, I went up there, and white people in his holler that grew up knew his mama. They told him they knew his mama. They said, do not take the relief out of this bill. They said, Robert Byrd did not put the Byrd rule in for this. They said there are 352,000 of us in this state who make less than a living wage. So I come up from where the people are. What we're talking about doing is far too late. And the truth of the matter is, while we celebrate the historic things that happened in the bill, a lot of them are temporary. They've got to be made permanent if we're going to have permanent change. But here's what we say, David, is is, um, the people in this country who were the first to get sick, the first to get infected, the first to get sick, the first to get die, were mostly poor and low wealth workers who mm-hmm. saved this country during this pandemic. And, and, and from a moral perspective and an economically sane perspective, we cannot have them go through this pandemic. And the EPI, Economic Policy Institute, says people will not be able to come back out of this pandemic because they went into it already broken. They went into it poor and low wealth. They went into it with only 39% of Americans able to afford a $1,000 emergency. And we have to have a fundamental shift in, in, in policy around this. And there's no doubt that the pandemic exposed these great fault lines in our economy and in our country. Well, finally, what, what, what grade would you give uh, President Biden uh, at this point, given what you just said? Well, my parents, teachers, I don't like grades. I, 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 this is what I was <laughs> All right. How about how about a general evaluation? Well, I, I would always be humble because he's president and I don't see everything he sees. But let me just tell you what I do think. First of all, after the, um, the election, we met with his policy team. We, we said we didn't want to meet the president because they had things to do. They're trying to get a cabinet. Mm-hmm. Up. We met with the policy team and we put forth a 14 point agenda for the healing of the nation. And we said to heal the nation, you got to deal with the sicknesses and the sicknesses are rooted in systemic poverty and systemic racism that predated COVID. They received this. And a lot of what was in that bill and in the upcoming infrastructure bill is in there. Some of it we call for more. Uh, some of it needs to be made permanent. Uh, we were we were moved that he kept his word. Thank God for a president, at least keep his word. He kept his word and put 15 in. He kept his word and said he was going to do infrastructure right behind it. He, he, he um, kept his word that he was going to get money to the municipalities. Uh, all of those things were good. We were disappointed when, when, when Manchin started rumbling. There was a stepping back and saying that they might not get in. And 
some of the stuff that goes on in Washington, D.C. But here's where we are, David. We, we, what 55% of, of voters, poor and well said to Biden and Harris, we believe you when you, we, you say you're going to do 15. You're going to deal with systemic racism. You're going to save the democracy. You're going to expand health care. Our goal is not so much to grade, but to continue to push because mm-hmm. the worst thing is uh, what happens to a raisin in the sun? People are angry doing Trump. You don't want people to turn to despair. You want, don't want them to feel like they, 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 they heard some things and then it got stopped. One parliamentarian has more empower than 62 million poor and low wealth people who make less than $17 out. You, 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 we've got to continue to give the strength. And so instead of grading, we're going to end the poor people's campaign continue. We started 100 days, Mall Monday for 100 days. We're going to launch another mass poor people's low-wage workers assembly virtually in June. And then we're going to announce a mass poor people's low-wage worker uh, assembly for June 21st of 2022 in person. If we had 2.4 million people online, I don't know how many we'll have in person, but we're coming. And we're going to push this 14-point agenda. You know, we're going to keep putting a face on the problem from Appalachia to Alabama, from Kansas farmers to Kentucky fast food workers. Uh, We're going to bring people together from Maine to Massachusetts, putting a face on it, changing the narrative, building power. We did a study uh, with uh, Columbia University, and they said in 15 states, if just 1% to 22% of poor and low-wealth people were to register and vote around an agenda, then, then voted in the past, they could shift who sits in office in North Carolina in Florida, in, in Arizona, in Michigan, in Ohio. So our, I think our work from, as a moral fusion body is not so much the grade, but to keep saying, build forward, forward better. And here's the bottom line. We cannot, we have to say this, we cannot ultimately be the nation we hope for. I said this at the inaugural sermon, unless we repair the breaches. We cannot be the nation we hope for if 43% of this nation, and it's more now, 43% of this nation before COVID was poor and low wealth. We cannot be the nation we hope for if plus 80 million people are without health care in the richest nation in the world. We cannot be the nation we hope for if, 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 if folk don't have affordable housing, if 4 million families get up every morning and, and buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water. And it's not all on President Biden and President Biden and, and, and Harris. It's not about whether that Biden is going to be better than Obama. People are pushing that thing right now. The issue is, are we going to be better as a nation? And our role as a moral movement, deeply rooted in policy, is to say, if we don't do these things, it's constitutionally inconsistent, it's morally indefensible, and it's economically insane. Everybody wants healing. They want domestic tranquility. But guess what, David? When we swear to uphold the Constitution, establishing justice comes first. You can't have domestic tranquility unless you establish justice. And you can't hold on to domestic tranquility. And yes, you provide for the common defense and promote the general welfare. And only then, only then, Maybe we need to start talking about left and right and centers and talk about constitutional analysis of policy, because only then do we have a liberty worthy of being passed on to our posterity. 
Reverend Barbara, as I said, I could talk to you for for for, for a long, long time. I appreciate your time. Uh, founder of uh, co-founder of Repairers of the Breach, leader of the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, one thing I know for sure, we're going to hear a lot from you uh, in the years to come as these debates unfold, and uh, I look forward to it and more conversations in the future. Thank you, and thank you for what you do. I promise you, it will always come from a place of deep love and comes from up from among the people. And I hope on your podcast you will put where people can click on it the fourteen point agenda for the healing of the nation. And I will, men- I will mention not, it. I we're, will. Not high, we're not hot air balloons and hyperbole. We're serious about this work of lifting up all. Okay, Reverend. Great to be with you. Thank you. Take care. Good luck. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.